As Pastor Kurt shared uh, this morning, we are in the year 2020, right? And there's a lot of jokes with 2020, but one of them is we want to see clearly, right? We want to see clearly who Jesus is, and we want to discover through a look in the gospel of Luke this year, exactly who Jesus is. Because if we get a clear vision of who Christ is, it should change us. Amen? It shouldn't leave us the same. Jesus came, and as people encountered him on this earth, they were changed. They were transformed. It made a difference. And so we in the church, we have to have a clear vision from the word of God as to who Christ is. And as we become as we know him for who he is, we can make him known in the community around us, amen? In clear ways, in powerful ways that he's called us to. Being a father of teenage boys, it's always a challenge because what happens in my family is that they begin to step up and challenge me in ways that threaten my dominance in the home. Because I'm the man, right? And I have certain things that, you know, I'm good at, that I, I'm stronger than them, or I'm better at basketball than them, or Drew's shaking his head no. And so what happens is, just the other day, my, my oldest son comes up and goes, Dad, I don't think you could beat me in arm wrestling anymore. And I'm like, oh yeah? Well, let's go. You know, and so I, you know, I was able to put him in his place real quickly, <laughs> So that wasn't a problem, right? But, but this little guy, this 10-year-old goes, Dad, I don't think you could beat me in basketball anymore. And I said, let's go, right? And I stepped out in the backyard, and we play something called knockout. You ever heard of knockout? It's basically where a couple of people have balls, and they're shooting from a certain distance away from the basket. And if you miss it, you got to run up, and you got to retrieve your ball, and you got to make it in there before the other guy makes it and then knocks you out, right? And so I'm thinking, like, no problem. So I, I take on Drew, and he just whips me the first game. I mean, just like literally I missed the first shot. His shot comes in, and boom, and I'm knocked out. So I go, well, rematch, rematch, <laughs> right? Be- best of three, right? And then he beats me again, best of five, you know? And what I realize is we start doing crazy things when our, when our status or our power is threatened in different ways. And as a dad, I begin to think of how I could sabotage my 10-year-old son. <laughs> how I could trip him as he was coming up or, or knock his ball over the fence. Something to prevent him from beating his old man and kind of putting me in my place. See, it's sad because there's a rise of skill and dominance that my 10-year-old son is having in that particular sport. And let's just say my, my abilities have leveled off maybe even declined a little over the years. And as we dive into Luke chapter 6 this morning, this is what's taking place in the world in which Jesus has come. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and, and those that were in power, in the religious power in Jerusalem, they were being threatened by this new man, Jesus, who had come on the scene. You see, he had... He had a gathering of people that were applauding him and were excited about what he was sharing with them and how he was ministering to them. And and all of this created a big threat to the current leadership, to the status quo, to the religious leaders who up until that time, they were used to people groveling at their feet. 
trying to find ways to, to please them. And yet the crowds had largely begun to abandon them and their leadership in favor of this new man, Jesus, who had come on the scene. So join me, if you would, in Luke chapter 6 as we begin this morning, continuing our look at the book of Luke. And help me as I, or join me as we pray together this morning and ask God to be present as we look into his word. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is. We thank you for what he, what he has done. And God, we want to we understand him and who he is more clearly in 2020. God, we want, we want a vision of him like we've never seen before. A vision so that we can have a a clear view of who Jesus is. Because I believe strongly, I know in my own life, God, when I've seen him for who he truly is, it transforms my heart. It transforms my actions. It transforms my priorities. It changes everything. God, I pray that everyone in this room might have that kind of experience with Jesus. An experience that changes everything. God, as we open up your word this morning, make it clear, make it powerful, make it transformative in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, he passed through the grain fields. He, speaking of Jesus, this particular Sabbath was not necessarily a Saturday as we think of a Saturday. The word here is a second Sabbath. And not only was there Saturday being Sabbath, but there was all the holy high days of Israel. There were seven of them mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23. You can read about them. Some of them you're, you might be familiar with. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Rosh Hashanah, which is the Feast of Trumpets, there was a lot of other days that were on the Jewish calendar that were also considered Sabbath days, rest days. This seems to be one of those. Jesus and his disciples were passing through the grain fields. His disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating them. So the disciples are just doing what they are accustomed to doing when they're hungry. And here's what's neat. In, in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, it, it talks about this idea of being able to pick the grain in the fields. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. I'm going to read that for you real quick. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says, I get there. It says this. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain field, you may pluck heads of grain with your hand, but you must not put a sickle to your neighbor's grain. In other words, God had made allowance for those who were farming to make sure that they didn't harvest everything and that they allowed their neighbors to come through their fields when they were hungry and eat. As long as their neighbors didn't take like equipment and start harvesting for themselves, they could simply pick the grain from the heads of the grain. And so the disciples are doing what is allowed by the law of Moses, and yet there seems to be a problem because it's a Sabbath. And here are the Pharisees who are threatened by Jesus and what he's doing. Verse 2, 
But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now they had created all kinds of man-made rules. There was actually over 150 rules that they attached to the Sabbath. The ones that they were likely accusing Jesus and the disciples of of, um, violating on this particular occasion was that one, they were, they were harvesting with their hands the grain. They were actually winnowing the grain, right? They were separating the wheat from the chaff. And they were preparing food. All three of those were forbidden on the Sabbath according to the Pharisaical law. And so in their minds, it's like a clear violation of the Sabbath that God had ordained. And they being the sole authority to determine what is right and wrong, we're now accusing Jesus and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus answered them, verse 3, Haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? I think it's interesting here that Jesus doesn't get into a debate with them. Jesus simply reminds them of the word of God. I love how Jesus responds to people because he doesn't get into a a tit for tat on some sort of opinion-based thing with people. No, he turns to God's word. You know, I, I think this is an important lesson sometimes in social media, personally, because I see a lot of Christians trying to argue all kinds of stuff back and forth all the time. And really, we shouldn't stand on anything that's our own opinion. We should stand on this the word of God. So next time you want to really put a post out there, just put a scripture in there. Let them look it up. Let them try and argue with God. You know what I mean? Because let's stand on God's word, seriously. Let's not just get into all these opinion-based debates. It's really, it's really not a good look. And it doesn't lead to anywhere that's usually productive. We're here to build relationships, not tear them down. We're here to win people's hearts, not win an argument. Amen? Amen. So we need to learn, this is just a side note, we need to learn what's best when we're dealing with people in this world. And here's the thing that's really ironic. We get on that computer and all of a sudden we're willing to say stuff that we would never say face to face. We have to be careful of that as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And we need to stand on God's word. So if you feel like, hey, they don't understand what God has to say, here's an opportunity to inform them. Look up a scripture and put that out there and let them think about that scripture. If they want to discuss that, great. I'd love to have a discussion about God's word and scripture with people. Verse three, Jesus answered them, haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the sacred bread which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. He even gave some to those who were with him, his men. Then he told them, he tells the Pharisees, the son of man, his title, is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's very interesting that that passage that he's referring to is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses one through six. We're not gonna take our time to read through that passage, but let me just say this, that David was on the run from King Saul. You remember he had already conquered Goliath. He had killed Goliath. And now the crowds were saying, Saul's killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And they were praising David for his accomplishments and his faith. And Mr. Saul, the old regime, got jealous. He felt threatened. 
Very ironic, is it not? Because Jesus is speaking to a group of men who are feeling the same way as how Saul felt in that day. And who does Jesus equate himself with? He equates himself with David on the run with his men just looking to be fed because he was being starved to death. He was being isolated and hunted down by this vengeful man named Saul. And so David comes across this, this location where, where God was worshiped and there was priests serving. And as a part of their um, service to God, they would put before God a loaf of bread. And it was to serve as the presence before God each and every day as they served the Lord. And the only people that were to eat of that bread were those that were part of the priesthood. That's what the law required. And so David shows up, and he's just hungry. He's famished, and his, his men are with him. But they stay outside, and David goes in alone, and he talks with the priest. He says, hey, I need some food. And the priest goes, we don't have any food. The only food we have is this bread, that, the bread of presence that stands before the Lord. And David goes, give me some. Give me some to eat. I'm the Lord's anointed. And so the priest does. And there were 12 slices of bread in that day, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the priest likely gave that over to David. We also know that he ended up giving him Goliath's sword. That sword that he had killed Goliath with was there. And he gave him that sword as well. And so David eats of this bread and he shares that bread with his men. And in the, in the, in the Old Testament um, tradition, none of the Pharisees had a problem with what David did because he was David. He was the anointed one. He was the king. And although he technically violated what they considered to be wrong of that day, he had a right as the anointed one to have that sustenance taken care of him. And Jesus equates himself and says, hey guys, didn't you read what David did? Now there's somebody here that's greater than David. There's somebody here who's in the line of David. I am the descendant. I am the rightful heir to the throne. Why are you picking on me and my men? So we see some things just from this story about who Jesus is. This is my first slide. Three things that I think are pointed out about who Jesus is from this story. Number one, he is the anointed king. He's the rightful heir to the throne. He's in the line of David. And he points that out to these Pharisees that are accusing him. Secondly, he's the appointed priest. He has a right. He's, in, he's the appointed priest. The book of Hebrews talks about him being the high priest. The one that intercedes between God and man. That's what a priest's role was. And Jesus said, I am the interceder. I'm the one who intercedes between God and man. So I have a right. I have a right to this. And thirdly, he's almighty God. That term that the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath, do you realize what he's saying there? When was the Sabbath law given? It was given on Mount Sinai to a man named Moses. By who? By God himself up on the mountain. It was part of the Ten Commandments. It was based on the idea that God created everything that we enjoy in this universe in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. 
It's interesting also as you read through Genesis, you'll see the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. The evening and the morning were the third day. And when you get to the seventh day when he rested, it doesn't say the evening and the morning were the seventh day. That idea of rest, that idea of God is done dealing with the work and now it's time for entering into the relationship rest with God, that was to endure forever. But there was a problem, wasn't there? Adam chose to rebel against God's instructions. He chose to turn his back on God and sin along with his wife Eve. And that created a separation in the relationship between God and man. Not only did it separate God and man, but it also meant that the rest was over. Because apart from a relationship with God, there can be no rest. There can be no peace. And now man was doomed to work the land. You remember the curse that was put upon the land? There were weeds that grew and they had to, they had to start to forage a living from the land when it was all provided in the garden that God had, had given them. And so there's this situation where Jesus is talking about, I am Lord of the Sabbath. What is he saying? One greater than Moses is here. I mean, they, they venerated Moses. He was the man in their faith. And he's claiming to not only be greater than Moses who received the Ten Commandments that included the Sabbath rules and laws, but he's saying, I'm Lord over them. In other words, he equates himself with who? With God himself. The one who wrote on tablet the rule of the Sabbath, the commandment of the Sabbath. He says, I am God Almighty. What a claim. Jesus is claiming that he's a, the king, the priest, that he's God. I mean, you can see how these Pharisees are having, an, having a real problem because their hearts don't want to accept this. Their hearts don't want to accept that someone greater than them has arrived on scene. As a matter of fact, their tradition said this. Listen to this. A lot of their tradition said that the only way that the Messiah would ever come, that, that, that the anointed one would come from God, is when the people began to observe the Sabbath perfectly. That was the condition. Once the people of Israel really observed the Sabbath perfectly, that's why they created 150 laws on what it meant to observe the Sabbath perfectly. And now they see Jesus violating three of them. And now they're really upset. They're like, that, the Messiah will never come because you and your men won't follow the rules. And Jesus is like, are you serious right now? I am the Messiah. What is wrong with you? Open your heart. But they were so closed off to seeing who Jesus was. And, and in missing Jesus, they were missing an, an opportunity for life, a transformed life. Verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was paralyzed. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him. Again, I think it's interesting. Did they plant this guy in the, in the, in the place that Jesus was going to visit? Maybe he was a plant. Hey, dude, you're all crippled. Come in here. We know Jesus is coming. We're going to see what he's going to do. We're going to trap him. Verse 8. But he knew their thoughts. Think about that sentence. He knew their thoughts. He knows our thoughts. He knows your thoughts. 
The book of Hebrews says there's no place you can hide. We are laid bare before the one who knows everything. So think about your deepest, darkest secret that you're holding, that you've never shared with anyone. Who knows it? Jesus knows it. Jesus knows it. And he's already accepted you. He's already loving you. Despite you, he loves us. That's our Jesus. Verse 8. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the paralyzed hand, get up and stand here. So he got up and he stood there. And then Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, the scribes, those religious leaders that felt threatened, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or is it lawful to do what is evil? Seems like an easy question, right? You think the Sabbath was designed so that we do good things? Did God give us the Sabbath for good? Or does he want us to be evil on the Sabbath? Second question. To save life or to destroy it? Is the Sabbath meant to to save life? We, We just had alternatives come up here and share. Do they operate on the Sabbath? I hope so. Because I think saving lives is awesome. And so does Jesus. And I think that no matter what time it is or what the circumstance is, Jesus is interested in saving lives, not destroying them. Amen? Amen. Verse 10, after looking around at them all, so I'm imagining, I don't know how long this went on, because you don't see the response to the question, do you? Pharisees are probably like, "Uh, uh, 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 if we say that, uh, uh, then we are agreeing with, no, we don't want to say that. And they're whispering each other, trying to figure out an answer that's going to be smart. And here they are talking to God. Good luck. Right? Verse 10, after looking around at them all, he told them, stretch out your hand. He told the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage. I love this sentence. This shows the heart of somebody who's not in line with God. God just saved this man's arm, restored him back to full health. And the Pharisees, instead of going, wow, that was awesome, they're filled with rage? Rage. Why? And started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. I'll tell you why. They were threatened. I'll tell you why in my mind I start thinking about tripping my 10-year-old son because I feel threatened. I didn't trip him. I might have bumped him a little. But there's this sense when you're threatened and suddenly you lose your mind and you start doing crazy stuff. That's the Pharisees. Their heart has been hardened. They're not willing to see Jesus for who he truly is and respond to him in a proper and appropriate ways. So instead, they think of ways to destroy him. They think of ways of what they might do to him, to get him. Now, here's the ironic thing about this whole passage. Jesus technically didn't do any work, even according to their 150 rules. I think this is really brilliant of Jesus. If he would have touched the man, that would have been considered work. But all he did is he said said some words. They couldn't get him on that. There was nothing in the 150 rules that was like, if you say, stretch out your arm, that's work on the Sabbath. No. So what did he just do? He just played their own game and he beat them at their own game because he healed a man, he saved a life, he restored 
someone, even on the Sabbath, and they still couldn't pin him down. They couldn't get him. Did they give up? No. They kept looking for more ways to get him. This was just the beginning. So first we looked at who Jesus is according to this passage. The second thing I want to do is why did Jesus come? I think we see three things from this section. Why did Jesus come? Number one, he came to teach us truth. Teach us truth. What was he doing on the Sabbath in the synagogue? What does it say in verse six? He was teaching. Part of his role is teaching. Part of why he gave us this is to teach us his ways so that we might walk in them. Not that we might hear them and then go, ah, I forgot about that. I'm going out and living my own life. That's not why he came to, to, to give us his word and to teach us. It's so that we might follow him with all of our hearts, that we might be blessed as a result of living according to his ways. He also was teaching us way to, to return to the heavenly father. You know, the very first thing Kurt spoke about this is that he opened up the scroll of Isaiah. You remember that? And he, and he said, this passage is being fulfilled today in your midst. He says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the link that God sent to save and to rescue all of you, to return you back to a rightful relationship with the Father. Do you remember what was messed up with sin in the garden? That's going to be corrected through my life and through my death and through my resurrection. All you have to do is believe and receive. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You can have new life beginning now and, and never ending for all of eternity. Open your heart to Jesus. He came to teach us truth, to show us a way back to our Father. Number two, he came to save souls. He came to save souls to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to heal, to make right what was wrong. He came to restore what what is right, to bind up what sin has broken, to destroy what sin has done to us. What caused this man's arm to be deformed? I don't know, but I can tell you this. Without sin, it would have never happened. Sin destroys, sin breaks us down, sin damages and leaves consequences everywhere. It's not just our own sin that we're affected by, no. It's the sin of others that affect us, does it not? Ultimately, it's the sin of Adam that affects us all because that broke the relationship that Jesus came to repair and to restore Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was meant to be a blessing to mankind, not a burden. But the Pharisees had turned it in with their 150 extra rules. They had turned it into a tremendous burden on the people. And they went around accusing people of violating all their rules. And God from heaven looked down and said, what a mess. I need to send my son to set set that straight. They've really screwed up my blessing. Why did he give us rest? Why did he ask us to take a time of rest? Because he knows us. He created us. Any workaholics in here? 
Anybody who's always working, never taking time, what happens? Yeah, your health declines, you get burnout, you get, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of consequences from that. God knows us. He knows that we need to take a regular rest to recharge and to spend time reprioritizing our relationships and to focus on some prayer and some, God, help me understand who you are. Make it clear who you are and how I should be in response to that. Jesus knows us. Have you taken God's gifts and turned them into a burden instead of a blessing? Verse 12, as we wrap up this section of Luke chapter 6. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. Anybody spent all night in prayer? A few of you. It's awesome. I've never done it. I'd fall asleep about 3 a.m., right? The disciples fell asleep with Jesus right there in the garden. Remember that? So I don't feel too lame, but that's tough. But Jesus sets quite an example here of how important prayer should be in your life. He knew there was going to be challenging times ahead, and he spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples, and he chose 12 of them. He also named them apostles. The word disciple here, is, it means a learner, an apprentice. At this point, Jesus had a large crowd of disciples that were following him. They were learners. They were apprentices. He had called out to all the people, who wants to come and learn from me? Who wants to come and follow me? And many had responded to that call. But now he's going to narrow it down to 12. Why 12? Because God has in mind something new. He has something in mind that's going to be new. There were 12 what? Tribes of Israel, you remember? Well, now there's going to be 12 apostles. Apostle literally means chosen messenger who is given a special commission. He's going to choose 12 men. He's going to give a special calling to. And those 12 men are going to lead a new people of God. And they're going to be the foundation of the church that he builds in his name. Verse 14, Simon, whom he also named Peter. You guys remember Peter? Yeah, all right. And Andrew, his brother. There's two of them. James and John, they were also known as the sons of Zebedee or the sons of thunder. These guys had quite the attitude. They were some rough dudes. They were the ones that were arguing and fighting over who would get to sit at the right hand of Jesus in heaven. Philip and Bartholomew. Bartholomew is also known as Nathaniel in Scripture. Levi or Matthew and Thomas, many of these guys had several names. It wasn't uncommon to have a Hebrew name as well as a Greek name. There was several names. Sometimes Jesus even gave him another name. Matthew and Thomas. Thomas, you remember him. He was the doubting one after Jesus rose again. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the zealot. We're not sure if this means that he was just zealous for God or if he was part of the actual faction known as the zealots who were radicals, who were willing, like terrorists, willing to do anything to get rid of Rome. Why would Jesus call one of these guys on his team? We're not sure. God had a purpose and a plan for all of these men and for building his church. Judas, the son of James, also known as Thaddeus in Scripture, and Judas Iscariot, 
who became a traitor. The list is also repeated in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Mark chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 13. In all of those lists, Peter always is listed first, and Judas Iscariot is always listed last, except for in Acts, because he had taken his own life, and he was replaced by Matthias as the as the uh, new apostle to take the place of Judas. Now, what's interesting, did Jesus know that Judas Iscariot would betray him, or did he make a mistake in selecting him? No, the Bible's very clear. He knew in advance what Judas was going to do, and yet it was part of God's plan. It was part of God's purposes. And that's really mind-blowing, because he knows all things, and yet he still wants to show this man love. And show this man who he is. So there's nobody beyond God's reach. Think about that. The man who he knew would would sell him out and betray him, he still said, come and be with me. Travel with me. I'm going to make you one of my apostles. I'm going to let you handle the money. I'm going to love you despite the choice that I know you're going to make. He knew Peter was going to betray him and deny him. Did he not? He knew that Thomas was going to doubt him. And yet, with every one of these men, he still loved them and he chose them. You know, you may say, well, Jesus would never choose me for any kind of special purpose. I'm flawed. Well, look at this list. This is a list of flawed men. The Bible tells us seven of these men were fishermen. That means they were uneducated other than they knew how to catch fish. They're not like high and lofty It says in the Bible that Jesus many times chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. Think about that. He wants to use lowly old you and me because he loves us and he wants to show his power through weakness many times. So what is our response to all of this? In verse 17, after coming down with them, he stood on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. The people were receiving what they needed. There was needy people Seeking after Jesus. So what's our response to all of this? Number one, have you responded to his call? Are you his disciple? Are are you desiring to come and see who he is and learn from him and follow his ways? it's, It's not because you attend church, it's because you've given your heart. You have to do that individually. It's not, you're not born into it. Just because you're an American doesn't make you a Christian. You have to receive individually, personally, the free gift of salvation that's found in Jesus Christ to become a disciple, to become someone that can learn from him. Number two, are you willing to represent his kingdom? Are you willing to represent? He's called us all to be ambassadors for his kingdom if we know him. Are we going out into a world and living a life that's different than what he's called us to live? Are we representing him in ways that ultimately deny him? Or are we going out there and we representing him and sharing him with others around us in ways that reveal him and who he is? 
I pray that we are consistent in that as his people, as his church. And number three, are we willing to render aid to those in need? What were they spending their time on? They were helping people. They were healing people. Through Jesus' power, they were taking care of the needs that were in their community. My question is, are we? Are you? Are you committed to taking care of people's needs? Are there ways to volunteer for Alternatives Pregnancy Center? I'm sure there is. Talk to Heidi. She can let you know. Are there ways that you can invest your life and your resources in ways that will matter to meet the needs of people around us? There certainly is. Get involved. Get involved. Make an investment of time, of resources, of prayer. There are ways to be involved. As Jesus comes into focus, we see several things I'm excited about. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and as we respond, I want to remind us of a few of these things. Number one, in Luke chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus reminds us that when he came, it's a new year. It's a year of jubilee, a year of freedom, declaring freedom to the captives and to those who are enslaved in sin and in shame. With Jesus, we get a new year. Amen? What's in the past is in the past. God forgives you of your past. You need to get beyond staying stuck there and realize that God has a new year in mind for you and me if we would just trust him. Number two, we learned today, there's a new Sabbath. The Sabbath that he created back on Mount Sinai, yes, he still wants us in principle to follow a day of rest. But Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I provide a new rest. I fulfill the Sabbath and its purpose. Those who come to me, those who come to me will find their rest in me. He's inviting us to find our Sabbath in him. It's a new Sabbath, a new idea of what the Sabbath represents. And then third, a new nation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. I believe it's on the screen. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to you and to me. If we've received Jesus, we are the fulfillment of this verse. So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen. There's a new nation that Jesus is building. It's a new nation founded on faith in Jesus Christ. Regardless of if you're black, white, yellow, red, doesn't matter. From, from, the, from a distant part of the world or from the Mecca of, of urban life, doesn't matter. Jesus is saying we're all level at the foot of the cross. And he's invited us all to be a part of this new nation by faith. And next week, as we dive into the rest of Luke chapter 6, we're going to find out that he has a new blessing in store for each and every one of us. I, I pray that you will come and join us then. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to know you, to know who you are and why you came and what you're calling us to do in response. God, make it real for us. Help us evaluate whether or not we are truly seeing you for who you are and whether we're making you known to those around us. God, and if we're not, help us to confess that. 
agree with you. God, I haven't been good doing a good job. I need your help and your strength and your forgiveness. Get me back on track. I want to live my life for you. I want to worship you with all that I am, all that you've given me. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.